0: Welcome to Kibbe of Liberty.
1: Chris, good to see you.
0: Thanks for having me, Matt.
1: Yeah, I was, um, I was scrolling through um, Twitter where I, where I find all of my guests and I was trying to find someone who knew something about the situation in Europe with energy particularly with Germany taking down their last nuclear plants and I saw your clip on Tucker Carlson and I'd already known that you were you were involved in that that brutal attack on a well you weren't I, let me rephrase that you were there when a brutal attack on your good friend who was a sta- who is a staffer for Senator Rand Paul and I was wondering if you could just tell that story to the extent you can. I know it's an open case, so I don't want you to, to do anything that, that corrupts that.
0: Yeah, more than happy to, and, and I think there's, it's been on social media. Um, like you said, I was on Talker talking about it, so more than happy to, to talk about that. Basically, uh, just really a few blocks from here, I was walking with my friend, Phil. Uh, he's a Rand Paul staffer, Philip Todd, and we were walking out of a restaurant. This was around 5 p.m. on a Saturday afternoon, Uh, Broad daylight hundreds of people around and we walked out of the restaurant and out of nowhere um, Someone attacked him and started stabbing him and I was on the other side of Phil when that happened Uh, and fortunately I I Was not hurt uh, and was able to see an opening and kind of instinctively tackle the attacker down and get Phil away to safety Um, But yeah, it's a it's a pretty shocking thing to to have happen to you.
1: And how's how's he doing?
0: He's doing remarkably well. Uh, he was discharged from the hospital just six days after the attack. He had a collapsed lung. He had a fractured skull. Uh, and it's been remarkable to see how his healing has gone so quickly. Uh, the one thing I'm, I'm telling people about about that process is I think his attitude has just been absolutely incredible. The the first night that he was laying there in the hospital bed, uh, all bloodied up, uh, we, we came to, to see him and he was praying for the attacker and he was just completely full of, full of grace and love. And I think it's an admirable attitude that any of us should have in a situation like that.
1: Yeah. You, you said uh, you, you had a thread on Twitter where his, his faith you think really helped him get through that. Yeah. That, some of the trauma.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And there's a verse that he kept repeating when any, anybody asked him how he was doing, he kept saying the joy of the Lord is my strength. And I think that really got him through a lot of that. And The nurses at the time and the doctors were saying he shouldn't even be able to be breathing by himself with a collapsed lung Uh, but he was there and he was able to have um to say things and to to pray and to talk to people and to keep repeating that verse to everyone that was there and i think he really uh, in, in a paradoxical way brought healing and light into that hospital itself because they see so many terrible things all the time and often hospitals can be very depressing places um but the room that he was in was was a genuine light in that hospital.
1: Yeah. So one of the things that that I learned, uh, Terry and I went through handgun training, I think about five years ago now. And one of the things that you're taught is to just be aware of your surroundings, particularly in a city situation. I try to do that, but it's 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 a horrible way to live life to constantly yeah. be on edge and be prepared for anything. But you, um, we all sort of wonder if if we're gonna be able to react as quickly as you did Um, did you think or did it just happen
0: it just happened honestly Um, and and to your point right now I definitely am much more wary of my surroundings and aware and maybe also spooked a little more quickly sure Uh, because like I said earlier it's it's definitely not something you ever expect to have happen to you Uh, and especially not when you're walking in what's supposed to be a very uh, popular part of the city in broad daylight on on a Saturday afternoon. Like if you're walking in a, a back alley at midnight, then you tend to be more aware but your guard is down when you're walking on on a street like that. So yeah, definitely definitely agree with you on that point.
1: yeah and and I and I was saying before we went live, I um, I've one of the many, many things I've worried about as a consequence of of government lockdowns and and all of the pandemic policies is how it's made people more desperate and and I do see a surge in violence and we certainly have it in this city.
0: Yeah, you have seen crime go up consistently in this city, uh, not just homicides, but also carjackings and, and things like that. I used to live in Navy Yard and it was kind of almost every other day that you heard about someone's car being stolen at gunpoint. And, and I, I do think the pandemic has, has a lot to do with that in the lockdowns because it creates a a general uh, unease in society and people don't really quite know what to do with themselves. And if if you're being locked inside your home, it's sometimes difficult to to imagine what what is productive and what you should be doing. And sometimes that can manifest itself in, in really bad ways. Yeah,
1: yeah. If you're watching this show, you're probably wondering, is there a way I can support liberty and improve my life at the same time? Well, there is. Pack Crest Botanicals is a libertarian owned company that makes botanical CBD products. I started using CBD oil to help me when I'm trying to sleep and my three annoying cats won't leave me alone. Now I can just ignore them for a solid eight hours and wake up feeling great. Not only are they run by our friends in the Liberty Movement, Pack Crest Botanicals also uses high quality organic ingredients in everything they make. They sell tinctures, edibles, Topicals and botanical vapes. CBD oil can help with pain, insomnia, inflammation, anxiety, stress, arthritis, and more. Use discount code Free the People to save 25% of your order. And if you select Free the People as your charitable organization at checkout, a portion of your purchase will be donated to us to help fight for freedom. Okay, so enough on that. But I definitely wanted to get an update because. Um, That's it's it's so close to every so we do so much work with Rand Paul as as I'm sure you do and and you're so I just wanted to get that on the table but let's let's solve the geopolitical crisis in Europe right now. It's much easier. It's much easier (laughs) to do. Um, And I I was trying to remember the first time we met. You were with the um, British conservation. Alliance. Yeah. Alliance, and you you grew up in, in somewhere in Europe. Where yeah. did you grow up?
0: So I, I was born in Belgium in Antwerp, lived there for seventeen years. My mother works for the European Parliament. My dad's a writer and journalist and kind of involved in in those circles. And then when I was seventeen, I moved to the UK and lived there for five years before coming to DC.
1: Yeah, and was it the Free Market Roadshow that we spoke together, or was it uh, Students for Liberty? I can't remember anymore.
0: It was a, a Students for Liberty conference in Milan, and then right. another one in Israel, <laughs> yeah, yeah. and then I think another one somewhere else as well. Yeah, yeah. We're spoken at many events uh, together or tangentially, um, but yeah, I think Students for Liberty was a central connection there.
1: But we were um, we were put together on a panel about um, um, the appropriate market. Res- uh, maybe they called it free market environmentalism, or you know what what can markets do to mm-hmm. to make for a cleaner environment. And and we sort of um, even though we didn't know each other, we started making similar arguments. So we've 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 been struggling with this, but that is um, one of your um, primary focuses at uh, the American Conservation Coalition. Um, what's your title there?
0: Uh, Vice president of external affairs. Okay.
1: But I, I was thinking about it, and and. Both the free market roadshow and various uh, speeches that uh, Terry and I give in Europe, you're you're asked about you know what do you think about Putin and what do you mm-hmm. what would you do about Ukraine? And I'm not a foreign policy guy, and I'm a libertarian. I I, I would be skeptical of of um, simple uh, military solutions. Um, but I tried to convince them you need a robust economy and you need a robust um, approach to energy. Mm-hmm. You have to not be dependent on Putin for your energy right. because if he controls that, he controls you. And, and this, this recent effort by Germany struck me as just a, a form of, of national suicide, like you're completely unilaterally disarming yourself when you shut down your yep. last nuclear plants in the middle of, of a war Um, where presumably Germans should be quite anxious about what Putin is doing.
0: Yeah, and it's one of those things where it's not just the last few years, honestly. Um, This whole anti-nuclear approach to German politics really started around 2011 when you had the Fukushima uh, meltdown in Japan. Uh, But it's not just a reaction to uh, a nuclear accident, which is regrettable, and maybe we can talk about why it's not an, an example of nuclear actually being unsafe, because it is very safe. Um, But it was also a very deliberate long-term play by the Russian government and and by Putin himself. They've spent a lot of money lobbying German politicians, um, spending money on uh, various environmental and climate organizations to get Germany to, like you say, unilaterally disarm. Germany basically uh, gave up on its domestic natural gas production and they started shutting down nuclear plants. And that to your point, completely plays into the hands of Russia, because all of that was replaced by Russian oil and gas, almost entirely. And Germany talked a lot about its energy initiative called the Energiewende, uh, which is kind of turning your energy turning. And they were thinking, oh, we can just get rid of nuclear, we can get rid of fossil fuels and go to renewables overnight. And that clearly didn't happen. And so every single domestic energy source that they shut down was replaced by Putin's oil and gas.
1: Yeah. And I, I think it was Matt Ridley that first pointed out to me that um, Putin um, credibly has been accused of, of funding certain radical environmental groups. Um, he was talking about the UK, but I think this is happening all over yeah. Europe. Um, and and it obviously plays into his interest because if you, if you shut down all of your reliable sources of energy, including very clean sources of energy, um, it's, it makes him stronger. Like, I, I wonder if he could, in fact, finance um, his, his current invasion of Ukraine if he hadn't um, so rigged energy markets through this, this political ma- manipulation. Um, and I think, I, think, I think we should call it out for what it is because the, yes, there's manipulation, but ultimately the governments of, of Europe have, have culpability in this. Or, you know, maybe they're useful idiots in this whole process.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And and I would say there's definitely an element of, of useful idiots. I think there's also people that have pretty nefarious ties to the Russian government that the that the Kremlin has really fostered over the years and leveraged to the max to be able to create the situation. Um, and so so I would say that that there is significant culpability on behalf of Europe, uh, not just when it comes to. The energy situation, so rising prices, lower reliability, um, going back to coal and the, the the environmental and climate impacts associated with that. And that. But that's even just the energy story, right? And to an extent, the economic story as well. But then the geopolitical story is, to your point, Putin built up a war chest of hundreds of billions of dollars of, of German money, of um, European money in general that he has been using for this war effort. And so not only have we shot ourselves in the foot when it comes to our energy, or I say our, I, I grew up in Europe, uh, but Europeans have shot themselves in, their, in the foot on the energy side of things. But they've also really just, in a sense, bankrolled what Putin's doing in, in Ukraine. And we've been completely complacent about that. Yeah.
1: Have you ever thought about using CBD oil? You haven't? Well, think about it now. Are you thinking about it? Good because now there's a way to support freedom and improve your life at the same time. Packcrest Botanicals is a libertarian owned company that makes a wide variety of botanical CBD products. I use CBD oil to soothe the sore muscles I get from constantly fighting the man here in Washington, DC. It's a tough job, somebody's gotta do it. PackCrest Botanicals uses high quality organic ingredients in everything they make, and as libertarians, you won't have to worry about them hurting people or taking their stuff. They sell tinctures, edibles, topicals, and botanical vapes. CBD oil can help with pain, insomnia, inflammation, anxiety, stress, arthritis, and more. Use the discount code free the people to save 25% of your order. And if you select free the people as your charitable organization at checkout, a portion of your purchase will be donated to help us keep fighting for freedom. I did a, a quick Google search um, um, uh, showed me not surprisingly that many of the major environmental groups adamantly deny any association with Putin and I suspect that there's 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 really elegant ways to to, to launder that money and mm-hmm. and make sure that there are no ties to it but even if it's not true there's I was thinking about this 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 really mm-hmm. important idea in public choice theory about, about regulatory policy is, is Bruce Yandell came up with this idea of bootleggers and Baptists. Mm-hmm. And in in uh, every meaningful way, the the you know, and, and I'll I'll explain the story in case no, nobody's heard it before. Um, the, the bootleggers profit with a higher regulation like, you know, prohibition of, of sales of alcohol on Sunday. Full-on prohibition. The bootleggers are going to make extraordinary profits in an illegal market, and the Baptists um, think they're getting what they want because they don't want people to drink. Right. And and this this logic uh, absolutely applies to environmentalists. Let's say they're let's give them the benefit of the doubt. Let's say you're not taking money from um, uh, Putin, but you sure as hell are giving him what he wants when you when you destroy all of these alternative sources to energy
0: yeah and i think what's most baffling about it is to what extent all of this was done in the name of the environment right because you can argue okay we need to shut down our domestic fossil fuel production because it's it's causing climate change and uh if if you then rely on putin like that's that's bad and obviously not even solving the problem but to say that we're trying to tackle climate change or reduce pollution and then to shut down the very sources of energy that are pollution free and that are allowing you to actually reduce your emissions as a country is just completely contrary to any logic. And and to bring it back to to the American situation, what's what's really interesting to your point about the bootleggers and the and the Baptists is actually fossil fuel companies, and there's records that show this, have been the ones that funded groups like the Sierra Club and Natural uh, Resources Defense Council over over decades and so going back to the first Earth Day when this whole uh, kind of modern environmental movement got started and at the same time that nuclear energy was developing and they built all these plants and the kind of the future was atomic and people were excited about that the reason why that was halted was because those groups with fossil fuel funded money primarily gas and oil They were going to regulators to try and make it as difficult as possible to build a nuclear plant. They were trying to shut down projects all across the country, and they've been successful. Just a few years ago in New York State, um, uh, Indian Point Nuclear Plant, which provided, I believe it was about a quarter of of the city's uh, energy, was shut down basically for uh, environmental reasons or fake environmental reasons. And emissions in the state shot up like 30 to 40 percent instantaneously. And so it's just a, a really odd uh, uh set of bedfellows that you would have fossil fuel companies paying environmental groups to shut down clean energy.
1: Yeah, yeah. It I mean if, if you understand how the process works, it makes sense, but it's it's such a perverse process because as you pointed out, I think you had a piece in the Wall Street Journal where, you know, the net result of this is is completely undermining of of our any any serious attempt to clean the environment. Mm-hmm. And that's sort of like the, the basis of your organization. It, it's a good thing to bring up because um, you and I probably agree that um, uh, market solutions are the best way to get better, cleaner, cheaper energy um, everywhere. And, that, I, and I think all of those are important things. I don't, I don't support people that are sort of anti-energy per se because I think ultimately that becomes an anti-human position because right. people need energy. Energy is life. It's, it's how we heat our homes, but it's also how we eat. And these, these are important things. Um, these are how people survive. But what is, uh, explain the perspective, perspective your, of your organization because I think I think you guys embrace a lot of those things.
0: Yeah, so, so basically the American Conservation Coalition was founded in 2017, which was a very interesting moment because It was kind of the height of climate denial within um, conservative and libertarian circles. Uh, You may recall Donald Trump said climate change was a Chinese hoax. And so you kind of had that going on. But at the same time, it was the, the, the rise of people like AOC and this idea of the Green New Deal. And they were using the climate denial of folks generally on the right as proof that no we need something radical that actually tackles a problem and changes the fabric of, of the way our economy works and to them that was a hundred trillion dollar uh, Green New Deal that basically gave government control over everything and ACC stepped into that space to show several things firstly young conservatives and libertarians across the country care about the environment and climate change the polling is undeniable about that, and they weren't being represented. The second thing is that the solutions that were being put forward not only would not tackle the problem, they, they for example, the Green New Deal would exclude things like nuclear energy and carbon capture and storage, uh, but it, was, it would also just broadly make energy incredibly expensive and not reduce emissions in China or India or elsewhere. Um, But at the same time, they would wreck our country and our economy and it would be the biggest expansion of government power since the New Deal. And so us as young people that that broadly believed in innovation in markets, in, in those principles, were very worried to see what the narrative had become. And really at the end of the day, we were just worried that we would end up with something like a Green New Deal. And so we stepped in that space to really uh, give those young conservatives and libertarians is also like centrists that are just completely alienated from the extremism on the left on this issue to give them a platform to talk about these issues and to stand up for better ideas and there was really no one else doing it at the mo- at that time and so that's why ACC was founded uh, and so in in the period since we've really grown a grassroots presence all across the country we have nearly 20,000 activists at hundreds of, of colleges and communities And really, in the same way, to my earlier point, how the left has been able to change the narrative on these issues so much because they have those grassroots members in every state and they show up at town halls and they send emails to their members of Congress and they're incredibly active. We felt like we needed a counterbalance to that. And so that's why we have such a strong grassroots program that's continually growing. I mean, 20,000 members in just a few years. Uh, And we're, we're really growing that very quickly. And so we're using that to change the narrative on this issue.
1: At Kibbe on Liberty, freedom is a lifestyle 24 seven, something you live and breathe and wear every day. If that describes you, you need the very best Liberty swag in the market today. Just like this shirt I happen to be wearing. Go to freethepeopleorg KOL and check out our exciting merch. You too can love Liberty and look cool. As I recall, um, the Green New Deal, when I when I first read it, it didn't seem to, it seemed to, to be wrapped in the rhetoric rhetoric of environmentalism because of the popularity that that you reference. But to me, it, it mm-hmm. didn't seem to have much to do about the environment. It was really, right. um, it was it really just a radical big government agenda where we were going to just um, let the government take over the rest of the private economy, um, right. particularly the infamous. Uh, um deleted first draft right which was was banning air travel and all sorts of crazy right. stuff
0: right and and i mean to, to your point for i think there was a someone did an analysis of this for every one word in the green new deal that talks about climate change in the environment there's eight words that talk about universal health care yeah and yeah. Uh, food security and racial justice and all that kind of stuff so i think I tend to be skeptical of people that have like grand conspiratorial approaches to these things. But I think it's, it's pretty obvious that it's a Trojan horse for a lot more than just climate policy.
1: Yeah. I mean, I don't think it's a conspiracy. I think, I think AOC and her, her wing of the democratic party have been quite explicit what, Mm -hmm. what they want. I mean, she self-described democratic socialist. Mm -hmm. So I don't, I don't think even she is trying to, to keep that a secret. the the one thing that that i think we struggle with I'm, I'm an economist by training and and you know the etymology of the word economy and ecology are are similar if not identical mm-hmm. and and i think when we start talking about the environment we naturally think about resource allocation and and market innovation and and all of these these the natural processes uh, the, the natural market process of of coming up with a better cheaper more efficient way mm-hmm. to allocate scarce resources and apparently that's not an attractive way to talk about this stuff um, because you have to convince people that yes we care about the environment we, we live on this planet we breathe this air um, these things matter to us but but ultimately there's 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 realities about, the um, more efficient allocation of scarce resources that lead to better, cheaper, cleaner energy. How do you guys bridge that gap?
0: Right, it's a great question because, and, and you know better than, than anyone with with the work that you do at Free the People that, and your frustration with how the liberty movement as a whole has uh, managed to alienate so many young people because we talk about facts and, and logic and knowledge and rationality, Whereas the reality is that most people can barely maintain an, an attention spend for a single tweet, right? And so you have to you have to hit them with, with a narrative and with an emotion that then allows you to have credibility on an issue to then talk about the solutions. And so that's the way that, that we go about it. It's been really fascinating to see how ACC has garnered really significant credibility within the mainstream climate movement. Because when somebody asks me, why do you care about this issue? I don't say it's because I want to... Own the libs, or because I I care about economic prosperity so much that this is the issue that I care about. It's because I say that I grew up hiking, I grew up uh, pretend battling orcs with my friends growing up in in the woods, uh, and I think everyone has that kind of instinctive love of the environment. By the way, I understand
1: that orcs are a significant source of methane. Yeah,
0: is, is that absolutely. is that true? Yeah, so yeah. that's why we were battling them. Yeah. <laughs> And so, so really, that instinctive love of the environment is something that I think every human shares. It's a part of a part of us, right? Because we're a part of a part of nature and creation. And t- leaning in with that is what matters. So rather than being like, "Oh, the Green New Deal—that's a terrible idea." Being like, "Hey, I get why you care about this issue. I care about it too. I just happen to think that there's ways that we can do this that actually tackle the problem and also don't make you sacrifice all the things you love about yeah. about your existence." And so. We we talk about instead of talking about like the roles of uh, markets in the sense of like resource allocation and property rights and stuff like that, we talk about innovation or personal responsibility or community engagement because those are the themes that tug on the heartstrings and less on the facts and knowledge strings.
1: Yeah, the and I've I've struggled to explain so so one of the arguments I I fall back to. Um, in, instead of arguing about about the the science of climate change, I question the practicality of a grand global solution, mm-hmm. um, particularly. And it, it would be probably more obvious today if, if you are expecting China and Russia and other countries that are that are quite hostile to the United States. Um, you know why why would they comply and. And obviously to take it a step further, why would developing countries like India comply with something that, that creates this this economic barrier to to their um, population um, finding prosperity and and health and, and all of the stuff that, that Americans sometimes take for granted? So I, I just I worry that these grandiose grand plans are going to devolve immediately into kind of a bootlegger and Baptist situation that makes the planet more dirty mm-hmm. and rewards bad guys and, and punishes people that are, that are uh, let's take them at their word, they're trying to do the right thing. Right. But that's just not how to do it. Right,
0: and the unfortunate reality is that, whether it's a Paris Agreement or other kind of grand international agreements, all of them have failed. There's there's no agreement that we can point to that says that that shows, oh, we're, we're tackling climate change finally. And we're we're coming together and doing it as a as a combined nation of peoples and all that. We're 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 just it just doesn't work. And that doesn't mean that there's not a space for people to talk about it on the international stage and to use diplomacy and trade relationships and things like that to help this. But fundamentally, it comes down to what's in it for various countries. And it's a, a really interesting form of neocolonialism to have people on the left nowadays say, oh, people in Africa, they shouldn't be using fossil fuels. Right. Whereas that's how we got rich. That's how we can sit in a, a nice studio with cameras and, and it's it's warm outside. So we have AC and all that kind of stuff. And why would we deprive people in other areas of that? Because fundamentally, as much as climate change is something we should be worried about and we should be doing something about it. Um, not having access to proper sanitation, uh, not having access to a roof over your head or a meal on your plate are more existential issues for a lot of people in the world. And so we have to find a way that allows them to reach that level of prosperity and that, that comfort level in their, in their quality of life while also ta- tackling these problems. And there's, there's an interesting concept that, that I've been uh, talking about and, and toying with. And my background is actually foreign policy. Uh, which is called the the clean energy arms race. There's the reason why so many countries uh, are beholden to the Middle East, for example, or at least they they war for a long time, is because of the the geopolitical importance of energy sources like oil and gas. And I think countries are starting to wake up to the fact that clean energy is the future, whether it's nuclear energy in its various forms, fusion, small modular reactors, whatever, or it's wind and solar with battery storage, or it's carbon capture, hydrogen. Those are the energy sources of the future. That's where the markets are heading. That's where countries are heading. That's what individuals prefer. And we should be doing everything we can to unleash that innovation and to allow markets to disseminate that competition and and allow other countries to come on board with that vision of how we tackle this problem. And China, interestingly, has actually started to understand this. Um, About a decade and a half ago, we led the world on wind power, solar power, nuclear, electric vehicles, all those things. And in the last decade or so, China has completely eclipsed us. They've completely started dominating those supply chains. They produce the vast majority of critical minerals, which are crucial components for these technologies. They build most of the solar panels, EVs, batteries, all that kind of stuff in China because they want other countries to depend on them. And that just shows... Uh, kind of a market instinct at work because they see that's the direction of the world and so what we should be doing is making it as easy as possible to innovate those things here in the US or in other countries um, and then trading that with partners to create that that competition on the world stage for these clean energy goods that that allows efficiency to work best it allows innovation to work best and um, and it allows prosperity to work best because if a if a certain solution doesn't make economic sense it's not going to fly, and so you're not sacrificing the the well-being of people in Africa for climate change. You're actually allowing both to go hand in hand.
1: It it strikes me that right now the 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 most innovative solution that's scalable is is nuclear. Um, but I also think that we don't we couldn't possibly know enough to know ultimately what yeah. what the real solution is. So I I think you know instead of this central planning top down um, we're gonna spend a lot of taxpayer money to subsidize this technology over that technology. Um, getting out of the way, getting regulatory policy right, getting tax policy right, and letting uh, really smart people that have insanely innovative ideas, just let them succeed or fail in the marketplace. And and that to me um, is is a great, It's it's where, as as a libertarian, I I see technology and innovation can can do amazing things, but you don't have to be able to explain what it is, Mm -hmm. um, because the best idea hasn't been allowed to come to market yet.
0: Mm Mm-hmm, yeah, and, and just to that general point, I just wanna convey that, interestingly, right now, the single largest obstacle to clean energy in the United States or to the technologies that would allow us to reduce emissions and thus help tackle climate change, the biggest obstacle to that is actually the government today. Uh, and when we it's because when we when we try to build energy infrastructure in this country, we have to go through a permitting process called the National Environmental Policy Act. And I don't want to get too into the into the weeds, but it's basically a government um, process to be approved to build projects to make sure, that they don't also negatively impact the environment and that idea generally is good right we can all agree that we shouldn't just build uh, a coal plant on top of a river and then pollute water downstream for an entire city like that obviously a bad idea but that law was written in 1970 and because of the way regulatory capture works because of the way that that government broadly functions right now that very law is being used to stop um all kinds of clean energy projects from coming online. And it's it's really interesting because that is that is directly the result of a government regulation. And I think it's around 70 to 80% of the projects currently delayed under, under this permitting process are clean energy projects, and only 15% are fossil fuel projects. So if you were to just get the government out of the way to allow permitting to be more efficient and to cost less, take less time, you would give an instantaneous boon to all those clean energy projects that not just the government has invested in, but the private sector has invested in. And so, to your point, get the government out of the way and allow the innovation in the market to yeah. work.
1: You know, I, I think there's a there's a growing realization amongst young people, left, right, center, but but may, maybe more pronounced on the right, this this idea that you just mentioned regulatory capture, that quite often you see the the, the um, really nefarious collusion of incumbent corporations, um, including um, you pointed out earlier, or oil companies, mm-hmm. and government, and the goal is not to um, protect the environment. The goal is to protect their business right. at any cost. So it might be a good time to bring to bring this idea to bear on environmental issues because I think now pe- uh, people are are really pissed off about crony capitalism, mm-hmm. and obviously we we need to draw a bright distinction between chronic capitalism and the kind of innovation that we're talking
0: about. Right. And and to, to bring the conversation back to, to nuclear and specifically like the, the idea of solutions that are out there that, we, that aren't even on the market yet, but that could potentially actually be the long term solution. I think nuclear fusion is something I'm incredibly excited about. Um, but right now we don't even have a regulatory structure capable of regulating it. Uh, and my worry is that the government is going to step in and try to do what they did to traditional nuclear energy yeah. and just over-regulate it and basically even prevent it from becoming a full-fledged market player. Uh, and so not only should we be simplifying the regulations currently for fission nuclear um, reactors, but also actually allowing a regulatory space for a future technology to not even be precluded, but be be able to be a part of the solution.
1: What To what extent have you guys um, made the argument, because cause going back to full circle to um, playing into Putin's hands and 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 arguably financing his his invasion of Ukraine uh, most if not all of the wars in my lifetime have really been about energy mm. as particularly true in the Middle East um, and I think I think one of the things that I worry about a lot is is endless wars and not only the, the loss of, of, of resources and lives but just the general disruption to to global peace and prosperity, um, energy freedom probably has profound positive foreign policy implications.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's one of the reasons why I, I embrace clean energy also from a national security, energy security, foreign policy perspective, because uh, not every country is blessed with oil and gas and coal, right? And that's been the energy of of the last 150 years since the Industrial Revolution. Um, and so if you're a small country or you just happen to not have those resources, it's difficult because you have to rely on importing it from somewhere else. And for a long time, that's been the Middle East. Um, but a nuclear reactor is incredibly small, uh, uh, at least proportionally speaking. And so there's no reason why most countries could not place one of those on on within their borders and um sure you might have to get the r- uranium from somewhere else but there's there's plenty of sources for the, for us to get that from but similarly for wind and solar or hydrogen or whatever it might be um, those are more naturally abundant for many countries and so it just makes sense for us to embrace it from that perspective uh one thing i am worried about is uh, to your point about how energy or energy supply chains impact global peace right now like i mentioned earlier china completely dominates all of those supply chains and if you don't do what china tells you to do they can take that away from you it happened to japan about a decade ago um, they had a minor territorial dispute with china and china overnight blocked the export of critical minerals to the country which you can't build cell phones, you can't build cars, you can't build military and hospital equipment without those things. And China completely dominated it because Japan couldn't mine those domestically. And so all of a sudden, Japan had to reckon with that. And they had to diversify and go to other countries. And so I'm really worried that we're rushing headlong into this clean energy future without thinking through the supply chains as well. And that comes back a little bit to our our talk about how ideologically, Uh, environmentalists just sometimes really don't make sense, whether it's nuclear or in this case, mining those critical minerals. You still need those minerals regardless of where they're mined. I'd rather mine them here in the US or Canada or Australia, which are allied nations that share similar values so that we can build those clean energy projects rather than building them and then being completely reliant on China and then what happens when they invade Taiwan or whatever else it might be. And so we can't substitute... Uh, fossil fuel energy insecurity for clean energy insecurity. Yeah.
1: And and I'm just going to take a wild guess and suggest that that American mining will will do it cleaner with greater respect to the environment. Than and, China no and, no, and no slaves. And <laughs> no slaves. No slaves. That's also a good thing. That's, that's even a bonus. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, let's, let's end it there. Tell us how we can find um, you and your organization and how people might get involved.
0: So you can find ACC online. Our website is acc.eco, E-C-O. Uh, you can find us on Twitter as well, which is acc underscore national. Uh, my personal Twitter is uh, Chris Barnard DL, David Lewis, my middle name. Um, but yeah, that's that's where you can find everything. And we're constantly putting out educational posts and videos and the cool things we're getting up to. And we're, we're always looking for people to be involved.
1: And if we follow you on Twitter, we can also get updates on your friend and his yes. recovery.
0: absolutely. Okay, thank you. Cool, thanks, Matt.
1: Thanks for watching. If you liked the conversation, make sure to like the video, subscribe, and also ring the bell for notifications. And if you want to know more about Free the People, go to freethepeople.org.